Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's host, Helen Hillix. I'm Todd Benton, your co-host. Today's topic, the very real, often unseen cost of war, moral injury to soldiers and their families. A conversation between Helen Hillix and Dr. I'm sorry, Reverend Dr. Zachary Moon. While soldiers make up only 7% of the population, they are responsible for 20% of the suicides in the U.S. Why? What is moral injury, and how do we help those who are suffering its effects? Join us as Reverend Moon exposes the painful reality of a deep and wrenching injury that cannot be seen. The injury to the soul when a soldier is asked to do things that are contrary to his or her moral convictions. While PTSD treatment helps many soldiers heal and return to normal lives, there are a significant number who are not healed by it. We will explore why and whether it has anything to do with the type of military engagement, as well as the country's perception of the battle being fought. What effect does this have on the families? How do they feel about their loved ones being involved in battle and possibly killing others, sometimes civilians and children? Join us as we explore the true cost of war and how to treat our returning soldiers with the care they need. Okay, thank you so much, and thank you, Reverend Dr. Zachary Moon, for joining us on such short notice. We were originally going to be interviewing Rita Brock, who wrote Soul Repair, but she got sick, and she very kindly um, contacted Dr. Moon. And what do you want us to call you? Uh, 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 any of those, those titles, you know, take a long time to get out. So let's let's just go on a first name basis. Okay, excellent, Zachary. Thank you so much. My my great preference is to be casual and connected. So uh, Zachary was kind enough to join us at the very last moment and has a lot of the same kinds of perspectives and some wonderful experiences to share with us today. So thank you so much for joining us. I do want to do some interrevolutionary news very briefly. Um, today, one of my favorite ones was submitted by, by Beth Green, the uh, sometimes used to be host of Interrevolutionary Radio, and it is on Fox News, believe it or not, and it is called I Am a Democrat, and It's Time for Our Party to Apologize to America by Brian Dean Wright. It was published February 28th, so it's a a week or so ago, but it's a very powerful op-ed piece about how the Democrats, before we do any more finger-pointing, before we move forward, we must the Democrats must apologize to the people and fight for something, give us something to fight for instead of fighting against the GOP. And he says, let's start with trade and how we uh, you know, gave away so many of the manufacturing jobs and we left the working class in exchange for contributions for their campaigns. And so he says, for that, America, we are sorry, we failed you. And he goes on to talk about the uh, environment, how we put environmental issues also uh, at the top of the campaign priorities, but didn't consider how it would affect all the people. And he goes on and on about, you know, the terrorist fighting and so forth. And I thought it was a very interrevolutionary article because it talked about how we've got to make amends before we can move forward together. And that is a very inner 
revolutionary experience is the taking of accountability. As any of you have listened to our show before, you know that oneness, accountability, and mutual support are the three principles of the inner revolution. And this certainly spoke to the need to be accountable before we can be connected to one another and be one and experience mutual support. I thought that was a very powerful article. The next one was also submitted by uh, Beth Green, and it's on MSN. Women go on strike in U.S. to show their economic clout. And I'm not going to – it said that the same March organizers for the prior Women's March organized this march. And I'm not going to go into any detail on it other than to say that the 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 need for equitable pay in the workforce – for women is still an issue, believe it or not. I read some of the statistics in the article that said, you know, the average woman's pay is 40000 something and the average man's pay is 51000 And it's just, it's just unbelievable that, that women are still paid 80% of what men are paid for the same job. So I thought that was a very important article and it requires uh, more inner revolution. And the third one uh, is an article that Anne Brennan uh, submitted from the Los Angeles Times. It's a column, and it says, A cautionary tale of what can happen when a sports parent pushes too hard by Bill Plaschke, contact reporter. And he's reporting about a, a man who is a screenwriter, Mark Cullen, uh, and he was... He, he was an athlete himself, and he noticed that his son had a lot of athletic ability and pushed him and pushed him and pushed him and thought he was just such a little stud when he would go out there and, and play even when he was hurt. And eventually, uh, I think it was in middle school, the son became, got some kind of syndrome, a neurological syndrome that is at least in part caused by doing exactly what he did, which is to push himself too hard and play when he was hurt. And he was in agonizing pain for several years. And he has gone back to sports, but in a very, very limited way. And his dad, the article is mostly about his dad and his shame and his regret and his acknowledgement that it was total ego that made him push his son to that limit. And I thought that, again, was a very inter-revolutionary moment that that dad was willing to expose himself so publicly and talk about the fact that it was pure ego and, uh, you know, wanted that caution tale to be spread so that other people would not do the same to their children. So that's it for inter-revolutionary news. I would like to just say uh, um, another welcome to Zachary Moon. He is an assistant professor of pastoral theology and care at Chicago Theological Seminary. He's served as a military chaplain with the Marines and Sailors, as a chaplain resident in the VA hospital system, and as a chaplain with combat vets in residential treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know that you also have done other things that um, I'd, I'd like you to talk about in the beginning, Zachary, if you would, um, starting with perhaps your involvement at Standing Rock. When I first heard that you that you had been a chaplain at Standing Rock for the pipeline resistance, I thought, I wonder how that is going to connect to, you know, the combat vets and the moral injury. But I think the larger issue really is that 
you care about how people feel and you know that the spiritual connection is so important in people feeling okay about themselves. So I'd like you to see to, to tie in that Standing Rock experience with your combat vet experience and talk a little bit about that moral injury issue and and how your perspective of oneness deals with that. Uh, sure. Um, uh, first of all, let me just say um, I'm grateful uh, to be joining you here um, uh, for this show and for this conversation. It's one that is deeply important to me and I think um, critically important for uh, all of us in community to be um, thinking in more substantive ways, um, in deeper ways about the true human cost uh, of war making. I think many of us may be familiar um, with the amount of uh, financial resources uh, that our nation commits on an annual basis um, uh, to supporting our, our, our military and our war making efforts. Um, and I, I think we are still uh, learning some of the hard lessons uh, about um, the impact uh, of war making uh, on our own military service members, and I and I pray that that in the near future we would um, understand that better collectively, as well as understanding um, the human and ecological uh, impact that our war making abroad uh, inflicts uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, you you invited me to to reflect a little bit on my time at Standing Rock, um, and obviously that has been. Uh, a, a place of, of action and resistance uh, here recently. Um, and what um, the, the, the invitation or the auspices is which um, I was able uh, to go there um, uh, was that there were a number of military veterans who were interested in going and standing in solidarity with the water protectors. Um, I think the, the vision that emerged kind of within that group was um, that they were seeking to be protectors of the water protectors. Um, at the time that we went up there in December, uh, there had already been um, a visibility on the ways in which the security forces there had been engaging the water protectors, uh, including um, some, some very uh, kind of um, violent encounters. Um, and a number of these military veterans, I think, felt a sense of um, call, um, a call back into service, uh, a call um, to serve and to uh, protect um, uh, some vulnerable people um, who needed um, to have some folks uh, backing them up. And I think what originally began probably as a vision of imagining maybe a few hundred, uh, you know, veterans would kind of go up uh, with this mission in mind, uh, turned out to be uh, different estimates, but uh, approximately 4,000 additional military veterans went up there. Um, wow. There had been a number of veteran organizations that were already present and, and a part of that witness uh, for, for weeks and months at that time, uh, Veterans for Peace uh, and other organizations represented there. But this represented uh, a, a kind of surge of uh, military veterans um, uh, there, uh, a, a part of uh, the protests there. And many of these veterans uh, don't identify as being activists, uh, maybe have never been to a political protest of any kind before. But but for them, the, the kind 
the connection to value and meaning um, had to do with the connection with their identity as a military veteran, first and foremost. They weren't going to make a political statement as, as much as, I think, to make a, a, a movement toward reconnection with that um, part of their military service uh, that, as I said earlier, was really about um, uh, protecting vulnerable people in the face of violence. Um, and so this large number of folks who, who came uh, drawn drawn by this vision and yet in many ways uh, probably not well prepared and equipped uh, for uh, some of the circumstances uh, that met us there. Um, uh, there was uh, enough wisdom uh, in the planning process to recognize maybe there needed to be some some other kinds of folks up there. Uh, and, and that's where um, this this team of chaplains uh, uh, began to uh, get organized, that, that we would go uh, for the purpose um, uh, of being chaplains and accompanying these military veterans in their mission. Um, we weren't going to be protesters uh, um, or, or, or to stand uh, alongside the, the, the water protectors uh, as much as we were there to try to provide the kind of spiritual grounding um, that, again, in, in, in our hope, um, uh, would help uh, that space to experience a kind of groundedness, uh, peacefulness, uh, even in the face of uh, what was um, uh, some, some pretty threatening and, and daunting uh, possibilities uh, of violence. Can I ask you a couple of things, Zachary? One is, the first thing is, um, do you think that some of those 4,000 veterans were called to stand with the water protectors as a way of healing their own sense that this gave them an opportunity to stand for something that they knew was meaningful, that it wasn't uh, the government sending them into a foreign land, but it was, you know, our own Native American community standing for basic human rights of protecting their water. Do you think that was a healing experience for some of those veterans, speaking of the moral injury aspect? You know, I, I, I certainly heard a number of those stories, uh, both in terms of what was meaningful that brought people there, but then also the, the story that was being written uh, for the folks who were there, uh, you know, as, as they were there, uh, a part of the community there, um, standing alongside other veterans from all over the country and, and having that kind of experience of, of reconnection and healing. You know, one of the real challenges um, that, that I have seen a number of veterans experience when they get home uh, from, from deployment and from their military service more generally is um, kind of what to do with the sense of um, being called to serve one's community and, and, one's, and one's nation. You know, there are lots of different reasons why people join the military. Um, but as I have uh, worked with, with active duty and, and reserve military, uh, as a military chaplain, uh, worked with, with veterans uh, in many different contexts uh, back here stateside, you know, what, what, what really emerges as a kind of common story has to do with the sense of the meaningfulness of service. Um, and, and I think, as I say, from, for many folks that they get home and, and there isn't a sort of, well, now I'm all done with military. Uh, you know, I, I, I won't care about service anymore. Uh, instead it is, well, you know, maybe that chapter of my life is over, but service is still something that's really important to me. And I'm, and I'm going to look around for other opportunities to continue to serve my communities, to continue to serve uh, my country. I want to do that with dignity. I want to do that with honor. Um, I want to do that with courage. 
And um, I think one of one of our real shortcomings as a society is uh, a failure to meet our veterans in that place. Um, that when we uh, perceive our veterans uh, either to be uh, heroes, you know, to be thanked and valorized, um, and and kind of put up on a pedestal, uh, or if if we come to see our veterans, you know. Um, as, as being only broken uh, and, and, and mentally ill or, or having these issues and we're just going to send them down to the VA hospital and, and they'll get some treatment down there. You know, so many of our veterans don't fall uh, kind of easily into either of those categories. Um, and, and I think, unfortunately, uh, in large part, this has to do with um, a kind of lack of understanding uh, amongst the civilian component of our society, that we don't really understand the human experience of military service. We certainly don't understand the moral dimensions uh, very well. Uh, and in the cases where our military service members uh, struggle with those moral dimensions when they come home, um, the the question of how would we actually better support uh, and be uh, relationally connected to folks who are experiencing that. You know, there's this phrase that I often hear, you know, veterans would rather talk to other veterans. Um, and that is such a complicated kind of phrase. There's a lot of truth in it. Um, and sometimes, you know, the truth of that is, you know, veterans see in other veterans a kind of commonality of that lived experience. And so maybe there's an experience of a little more trust or rapport, uh, uh, even just in the kind of language or, or, or terminology that, that gets used, a kind of familiarity and, and comfortability that happens there. But, you know, there's another part of that phrase that I hear. I hear folks who haven't been in the military sort of passing the buck, you know, saying, well, you know, since I'm not a veteran, you know, this, this veteran would probably rather talk to another veteran. And, and unfortunately, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, Absolutely. When, when folks who haven't served in the military, you know, say, well, I don't have a part to play in, in the, the interpersonal uh, or community uh, part of, of this person's uh, experience coming home. You know, we're, we're taking ourselves off the hook. We're abdicating our responsibility. Um, and to be really frank, uh, you know, in this most uh, recent generation of military service member, you know, uh, the, the very active um, wars that have been fought over the last 15 years, um, we have had a smaller number of American citizens serve in uniform during these 15 years than we ever have uh, before uh, in previous generations. Um, uh, only a little more than 2 million folks have served uh, in the military. That's a fraction of the number of folks who served in Vietnam and, and a much smaller fraction of, of who served in, in World War II. So when you think of how long these wars have been and how few people are serving in the military, um, and I'm sure people are aware that we're redeploying uh, military service members again and again, sometimes on an annual basis, um, with really very um, detrimental kind of uh, consequences to that. Yes. Um, but if if I'm a veteran of, of this generation and, and I'm saying to myself, you know, I can only talk to another veteran, um, I might have a hard time finding somebody to talk to when I really need to talk to somebody. And Absolutely. And, and if instead I have some people in my life who, you know, say, look, there's a lot about your lived experience in the military that I don't understand and, and may never understand, but um, I care about you and I want to be... Um, 
I want to be worthy uh, of your trust and your friendship uh, just because I care about you. And the, 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 the potential for that to blossom uh, in that veteran's life, to have the experience of, you know what, I had this great conversation with Helen. And, and Helen doesn't know anything about the military, but, but she showed me compassion and she regarded me in a way that, that I felt seen and felt cared for, um, felt like I was a little bit more of a human being um, than maybe I felt before. And if I could have that kind of conversation with Helen, you know, on, on, on a Thursday, you know, maybe tomorrow, you know, I could, I could bump into somebody else who never served in the military and have a great conversation with them and, and the kind of blossoming of somebody's, um, interrelational world at that point is, is so phenomenally important, um, to the experience of what it is to come home. Do you think, Zachary, that, I mean, I agree with everything that you've said, um, and, one of the again, one of the principles of the inner revolution is oneness. And don't you think that the the populace of the United States, and I can't speak for other countries, but it's like we want to assign all of that horror of war to these few people, and we want to pretend like we are not that, that we aren't a part of that. And you know it's it's so distasteful what they are asked to do what they have to do in those wars and and it's like when they come home people want to pretend like okay that's over let's just push that under the rug and go on and it's like everybody wants to pretend like it's something that happens somewhere else to someone else instead of welcoming people home you know I agree with you in your beginning statement you know we we I hope someday we don't have to have wars anymore period but as long as we have them we have to own them we have to say I am that I killed those people over there just as much as you did and therefore you are welcome home back into our society because you are one of us you're not a separate entity anymore we are all soldiers and if, if you have to kill, we are all killers. And there is no them and us anymore. Yeah, I mean, what, what you say there, Helen, I really resonate with. I think um, the conversation about moral injury as it pertains to military service, I think, I think part of the hard work for us, um, you know, here as a nation, as one nation, um, uh, and, and, and the civilian component of that, uh, which, which obviously is, is most uh, folks, mm-hmm. um, I think as we talked about in the intro, you know, veterans only make up a total of about 7% of our population. So we're talking about a kind of overwhelming majority of folks, um, you know, who haven't seen that experience um, up close. Um, uh, obviously, that 7%, you know, also those are family members and, and other folks who are impacted by that. But I think you're right. I think um, it's a little bit um, uncomfortable uh, to um, uh, yoke ourselves to some of the terms that you were using. You know, if if you're going to fight this war, then I'm going to fight this war. If you're going to kill, then then that's on me too. The, the question of, of moral responsibility when it comes uh, to war making is really something that has haunted uh, civilizations for for generations, uh, you know, f- far beyond our country as well. Uh, but I think you're right. I think there is something in us 
that that maybe whether we would like to uh, admit to it or not, you know, would would rather have somebody else uh, bear the weight and the cost of that. Um, and and but I don't want to stay there. I mean, I I do want to acknowledge the sincerity of concern that I see. Uh, in in many communities, in many religious communities, um, in a number of people who are trying to do good therapeutic work and good advocacy kind of work, um, but I think I think what what the the kind of really a quite a, a radical notion that that you just uh, named there, Helen. I think if we came to a collective space where where we were able to really sit and lament and and groan with the tragedy of of what. Um, our war making has been about. I, I think we would we would live a different tomorrow um, yes. if we were able to be as as honest with ourselves as as you just described. Um, I think yes. in the meantime, I think in terms of thinking about how do we get there, um, I think thinking about how do we nurture relationships between veterans and civilians um, is a really critical component of that. I think it's it's if if we keep um, sort of operating in these dis worlds from one another, you know, uh, set up by phrases like, well, veterans just talk to other veterans and, right. and I'll just stay over here. You know, it's, it's, that con- it's those kinds of ways of thinking that if we're not a little bit suspicious of that, you know, if we don't say, well, wait a second, you know, is a little bit of my fear or a little bit of my desire to avoid conflict or, or maybe avoid some truth, some hard truth, um, the kind of truth that might implicate me uh, as a civilian uh, in this in this war making experience, maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to avoid that a little bit, and I, and I, it's hard, but but I think we need to find the collective courage um, to step toward that a little bit. I want to touch. The, well, I just want to say that's the inner revolution right there. That is the inner revolution that we need is to face ourselves and to say, I am that, and we are one, and we are accountable, and we need to offer mutual support. You know that that is what this this whole show is about to me is that this is the inner revolution we need to make is the way that we view and treat each other. So go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I I think that's a wonderful vision, and I think it's it's absolutely germane to the conversation about um, uh, about the kind of social transformation that's here. I, I just wanted to say one thing to, to that I hope will kind of help. Um, maybe maybe humanize this this moral struggle a little bit for some military service members, which is um, we we understand uh, from um, you know sort of uh, 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 tracking the the psychological metrics on this that that one of the differences that has been brought about. Um, in 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 today's generation uh, of of warfighter, uh, and these are folks who all signed up to be in the military, uh, a military that is now very much identifying as a professional military, uh, with with a sense of you know you should be in the military for twenty or more years and and receive entitlements kind of based on that. Um, that in contrast uh, to um, a, a generation ago when we had a military draft. Um, and and one of the the differences in terms of how moral agency and and some of the moral struggles have worked differently between that generation and ours, is that actually a, a human being who who just uh, does the simple act of signing their name to a piece of paper, okay? Uh, think of the sort of uh, the the simple ritual of that. There's a way in which our brains then begin to tell ourselves, whatever happens after this is my fault. 
mm-hmm. I'm responsible for this because I signed up for this, right, right? right? And maybe I didn't know what it was I was signing up for, but 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 somehow this all is going to come back and 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 fall on me. Now I, I, I'll tell you, <laughs> there were lots of folks serving in the military um, in our war uh, against Vietnam who. Uh, didn't feel like they had signed up for that. Uh, they they were maybe less than happy to be there. Um, but but what that generated was some space for moral dissent, some some space for for criticism, some space for accountability, in a different kind of way. Because there were people saying, "I didn't want to be here in the first place, and I don't want to be here right now. And what's happening here is not okay." And, and the way in which we are conducting our, our military, the way that we formatted our military, uh, really unfortunately forecloses on some of, you know, maybe what would be a kind of healthy level of moral agency and the right to um, disrupt and dissent in, in, in the face of, uh, you know, maybe what, what might be happening. I mean, a, a number of us, I think, are familiar with some of the high profile um, you know, media visible uh, situations in places like the the prison at Abu Ghraib or right. um, sure. the, the desecration of, of dead bodies, other things that are happening like that. Um, and and again, the way the the way in which you were talking earlier, Helen, about sort of who is responsible for this, you know, events like that, you know, are, are so um, are so jarring to us, and 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 we want to blame somebody for that, uh, and. Um, and we don't want it to be us, you know. Uh, exactly. You know, uh, and so uh, um, there, there's a way in which, uh, you know, I think we're, we, 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 we would like somebody to, to, to be unlike us and, and to be uh, blamable for something like that. And, and unfortunately, um, in, in not having a draft, I think one of the maybe some of the consequences that we don't think about um, is we don't actually have a lot of folks there um, who maybe feel like, you know, I, I could speak up and I could say something uh, because something actually um, for many veterans feel like, you know, even if I'm uncomfortable, even if I feel um, morally injured uh, or morally stressed by this situation that I'm in, I have nobody to blame but myself. Um, and that is such a morally trapped kind of condition to be in. Yes, um, and, and difficult to heal, I imagine. You know, one of the one of the things that I read about moral injury is that the the nature of the conflict and the collective's perspective about that conflict also colors the soldier's experience to a large degree. For instance, Vietnam was such an unpopular war, as as have been Afghanistan and Iraq and now Syria. You know, they're they're not popular wars. People don't feel like, you know, we're fighting for our you know, so that Hitler or Japan won't take over the United States. You know, people don't feel that way. And so they're very unpopular with, you know, with most people. And and this poor soldiers come back. And while they're over there, even, they have this experience of, you know, what in the world am I fighting for? You know, they might have thought that they knew when they signed up. But when they get over there, I think so many of them are faced with that dilemma that, that, you know, is this really a meaningful thing to give my life for and perhaps take other lives for? I, I, I think there's uh, I think there's some real validity to, to, to that point, Helen, that, that does contribute, I think, to the moral struggles of some folks that I know um, that I've had an opportunity to work with. I think there's a, there, there may be an even more insidious uh, kind of uh, issue that, that has to do with folks who 
return from war and perceive um, civilians as not even being aware of, of mm-hmm. what is going on. Yes. That there's that there's a sense of, you know, um, I, I my life was in danger. People that I care about's lives were in danger. I was being asked to do things that, that were very challenging and, and heartbreaking and, and maybe traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get back here and, and folks are just going on about their business kind of with with no regard or no awareness yes. um, of what it is that, that we're up to, what it is that we're asking, you know, even indirectly, we're asking um, folks in the military to do in our name, to do in our nation's name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe we think, okay, I'll go to a peace demonstration and, and then I will have said my part. Um, but it's it's a little more complicated than that. Um, I, and, and I think we need to be willing to, um, draw into relationship with people um, to, 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 to be on the lookout for those kind of opportunities. Uh, and maybe that's going to be a little messy. <laughs> maybe some of these folks are going to see the world differently uh, than we do. You know, I, I spend a lot of time uh, talking with uh, church communities and religious communities um, who might be more politically, you know, ideologically further to the left, you know, be more liberal or, or progressive uh, in their identification. Um, and, and some of those folks um, uh, have a hard time thinking about how, 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 how could I be in relationship with somebody who's in the military when I, uh, I protested against these wars. I don't think we should have been there. And, and this person signed up to, to fight uh, in these wars. And, and so we, we get kind of entangled in our own um, thinking about that. Um, and unfortunately, as we get entangled with that, um, it sometimes really um, diminishes our capacity to really just be present with people. Uh, just remember that that people are still people, um, and even if they've had different lived experiences, you know, there's still an opportunity to be in human relationship. Uh, again, if we're willing to be patient and compassionate um, and open to change, I think one of the hard things that's sometimes hard for for liberal folks, you know, uh, who have those political and values commitments to them is. Um, they they think that people in the military are all politically conservative, uh, you know, and sort of ideologically unlike them. And we spend a lot of time in our own echo chambers, you know, maybe maybe now more than ever uh, uh, mm-hmm. since the campaign and, and the presidential election results uh, in this new presidential uh, administration. You know, it, it seems like folks are, are even more um, uh, directing those, those, those energies to to, to sort of like-minded people, you know, we, we're drawing together. There, there's a sense of, you know, the, the world and, and our country and our communities, there's a lot of danger and crisis. And so we've got to hold fast to each other. And there's a kind of survival um, uh, kind of impulse in that, that, that I have a lot of sympathy for. But I also recognize that, that if we really um, are to live uh, in, in uh, a different kind of world, um, those of us who can manage it uh, need to try to step uh, beyond the, those those communities. Uh, need to tear down a little of that insulation. Um, risk uh, uh, having some connections with people who see the world differently and and think differently and and maybe believe differently. You know, sometimes it's on religious or spiritual grounds. Um, and and there's a lot of different theologies out there. There's a lot of different belief systems out there. Um, but I can say, uh, you know, I, I grew up as a as a Quaker in a very uh, a liberal part of the country. 
uh, in a, you know, in a pacifist um, uh, church tradition, I never would have imagined that I would have been a military chaplain, uh, you know, a single day of, of my life. Right. Uh, but I can also, uh, I can also, uh, you know, uh, tell you stories about how uh, transformative that has been for me um, to be able to spend time with people that I never would have met if I had stayed in Berkeley, California, exactly. or, or stayed, uh, stayed just in, in, in peace uh, and, and pacifist-oriented uh, uh, kind of communities. Exactly. I, I love what you're saying, and it segues back into the Standing Rock. The, one of the articles that you sent me was about how you felt that the need and the, the chaplaincy job there was to temper the, you know, the energy of violence among some of the uh, veterans who had come there to stand with the water protectors and that you found yourself, you know, in this place that where you had to embrace your own neutrality over and over again in, in that your job was not to protect the water protectors, but to support spiritual grounding, as you said, and neutrality, and that you had just as much compassion for the people, the, the police force, so to speak. I don't know what they were called, really, but the, the uh, police force is what I'll call them, as you did for the water protectors. And I think that is an ideological challenge that we are facing so much right now, and you said it very well. And th- this is what the, the innerrevolution.org is, is really all about right now. It's trying to bring those parties together. We're hosting an event April 8th called Revolutionizing the Abortion Conversation and inviting people from both sides of that very contentious and painful issue to come together to talk. And I love what you're saying about, you know, those of us who can muster the courage and compassion, we need to reach out to veterans and whether they are conservative and, you know, um, huge Trump supporters and you're a Democrat, you know, it doesn't make any difference. We're all human beings. We all value being loved, being validated, feeling safe. We all want basically the same things and we need to come together. If we're ever going to move forward, we need to come together and, and stop the ping pong effect uh, that we have been engaged in, you know, for eight years we go to the left, and then eight other years we go to the right, and then you know, then we undo everything they did on the left, and then we undo everything they did on the right, and we, we're not making real progress because we're not overcoming our discomfort, as you were saying, and walking across those lines and embracing one another. Uh, I saw this on Facebook and reached out to this man named Daryl Davis, who has a uh, Netflix documentary coming up called Accidental Courtesy, and he is a black man who went toward the KKK and invited them over to dinner and just diligently worked for years, and eventually 200 KKK members put, you know, gave away their membership and, you know, and their uniforms and all of that activity because of his intervention of walking across that line and embracing people that you that you know ideologically you are not close to and so i i really i was so happy to to hear what you're saying zachary because it i think it's happening i think people are realizing that even though you're you're correct also that it's never been more polarized I think the same thing is true that that it's never been more a call to awareness that we have to stop polarizing. 
Yeah, Helen, I think these are really important points uh, and and ones that uh, are, are very close to my heart uh, and, and sort of the hope that I have. But I also want to say that, that there's not any part of the, the work or experience that I've had that has led me to believe that that is um, uh, everyone's um, uh, moral duty. You know, there there are communities and, and, and people in this country who are under a very real onslaught of terror. Um, and they, they may be in those situations today. Their families for generations may have been in those those kinds of situations. And, and I don't, I don't want to come off, um, uh, with a sense of saying, you know, if, if we all just, uh, you know, got along and, and we all just were willing to sort of come to the table and talk, there, there's a, there's a way in which that can sort of lend itself, I think, unhelpfully to, um, uh, minimize how difficult it is to do this. Yes, and so the, the, the challenge that I think is for us, for, for each and every one of us, is just to ask the question, is there something that I can do um, to, to reach out? But, but, but I would say every single time we reach out, um, in small ways, in big ways, you know, um, that constitutes a real risk. You know, every time, you know, we open ourselves up to a new relationship, you know, that relationship can fail. You know, that person could, could say something that hurts us. That person could do something um, that, that hurts us. And, um, and, and so I, I really want to celebrate and, and have um, uh, kind of deep, deep respect um, for those moments where folks take those risks. Because, um, it, I mean, one, it, being able to take those risks isn't always viable uh, for certain folks in certain communities. Um, but when I see people taking those kinds of risks, and when I hear stories about just remarkable kind of moments of connection and transformation um, that, that come together, uh, I, I don't know. To me, I feel like we glimpse something of, of a different kind of future um, that that's possible. Um, and, I completely and, and these agree. Times, and, and, and you and I have, have, have both named this uh, – uh, in our conversation, Helen, you know, where we may be as polarized as we 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 have ever been uh, during this time, it's it's not that I would mean to suggest that that the fierceness of the kind of the no statement, the resistant statement, the defiant statement, um, you know, uh, those are are worthy of our energy. I, I I don't mean to say that they aren't, um, but I also just want to raise for us the question, um, in addition to the defiance and the resistance and, and the profound no that, that we may need to give voice to in the face of injustice and tyranny. My question is, what are those things that we need to be saying yes to? Um, where are those people um, who uh, uh, may, uh, may be available uh, to be in relationship with us if we understood relationship differently, if we didn't try to begin a conversation with our ideological uh, uh, arguments, uh, but rather um, uh, tried to find ways to connect with each other, maybe on more kind of human or, or personal kind of levels. You, you talked about the, the chaplains up there at Standing Rock as maintaining neutrality. I don't see what we did as being neutral. I see what we did up there as trying to live into a third way, a third presence, um, 
that that as both of these two sides were pitted against each other, it wasn't that we were saying we have no stake or no skin in this game. Right. We do. We we wouldn't be there if we didn't feel a sense of urgency, uh, a sense of the importance of what's happening there, and and the importance of the people who are there. But in seeing the 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 human beings on both sides uh, of this entrenched uh, antagonistic. Um, uh, kind of confrontation with each other, you know, there are ways in which um, when we do this polarization thing, we end up losing connection to the humanity on the other side. We dehumanize the other side. We see them as being wrongheaded um, and and maybe even, you know, uh, evil. Uh, sometimes, you know, that th- those kinds of uh, terminologies gets used. You know, we, we just can't imagine what those kinds of people are thinking Right. Uh, and and in and in kind of framing it for ourselves that way, um, there's a way in which we may be closing ourselves off to what sometimes are unexpected, uh, you know, sort of hard to believe uh, opportunities to just find ourselves in conversation with each other uh, and making connections around something else. Um, uh, a, a dear friend of mine, as as I was talking a little bit about this work, she shared with me, you know, that for most of us. Um, you know, when we get together with our family members, you know, maybe uh, around a major holiday, you know, everybody kind of knows, you know, what those topics are that that our family isn't going to talk about. And you know what? We find all kinds of other things to talk about. And we eat together and uh, we laugh together and we remember together and, and we feel um, a, a sense of caring and connection for each other. And we don't talk about everything, right? I mean, that's true, okay? So maybe uh, maybe we're not being totally honest with each other. But I think the, 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 the maybe sort of uh, experience that many of us have had in those situations, we know full well that we can love people that we don't agree with, that we don't like even, uh, uh, at, at, you know, around certain areas. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, if, and if we could remember that, you know, that lived experience, well, wait a second, you know, if if we could get together, you know, at holiday time, and still find things, you know, to to smile about and um, and to greet each other and to to dwell with each other, um, you know, with a with a sense of kindness and and lovingness, um, I, I think we're we're glimpsing something of a of a different kind of future. I I completely agree, and I, I'm glad you corrected the neutrality statement. I think a better thing to say, which. Y- I think you alluded to is is an openness that that you bring an energy of openness you know that openness to connection and openness to listening and openness to looking for those opportunities to connect and I also I'm really glad you brought up the the issue that not everybody is going to be able to take the same kinds of action to try to change the world. And there are people who are fighting for their very survival and have for generations. I completely honor that as well. And one of the things that we advocate in the inner revolution is that if if you're feeling helpless, that taking some sort of action is going to make you feel better. And I, th- I really agree with that. And that, that action that you may be able to take is being kinder to your sister or listening better to your mother or your neighbor or, or something. That may be the level of action that you're able to take at this time to try to promote the world changes that we're all talking about. And I think that's very important to keep in, in our minds that not everybody is capable 
of, of doing the, the same level of things, but everybody's capable of doing something. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Helen. And, and I would even say, you know, sometimes when we talk about, you know, sort of big things and little things, you know, there's a way in which we can, you know, sort of maybe unintentionally sort of say, you know, well, if I was more courageous, I would have done a bigger thing. And, and I agree with you. I think starting right where you are and, and doing what it is that you can right where you are. To me, that's the biggest thing. You know, that's not a, that's not a little thing. I celebrate no, that absolutely um, uh, alongside, you know, you know, um, uh, just about anything else. I, I, I'm reminded um, as I'm as I'm hearing you reflect on that, Helen, that um, I, I was talking with um uh, somebody who whose nephew had served uh, in in the army in Iraq, and when he got home, uh, he was um, uh, he was different, uh, and and she could observe that, and and she just didn't know kind of how to how to love him, you know, how to be of best kind of support, and she she could see that that he needed. Um, uh, maybe a lot of different things, uh, and and she just didn't she didn't know, you know. Uh, it seemed like probably the stuff that he was dealing with was was more than she would know what to do with, and she'd never served in the military, you know. So where would she begin? Um, but but how their journey of of reconnection um, and and I think toward healing really began was that she and her husband just had their nephew over for dinner. Um, and they were open, just as you say. I think that's an important image for us to keep in mind. They were just open, and, and they met him on his terms. And they didn't say, you know, well, tell us what happened over there, or, you know, wh- why is it that you're different? Uh, we can see that you're different. Why are you different? You know, they didn't, they didn't poke and prod, but, but they were just open, and, and they, they gave him some space to, to be himself. And by the end of that dinner conversation, he said, you know, uh, somebody recommended this book. Would you want to read this book? You know, he he just kind of put it out in a very kind of passive way uh, about being interested in this book. And, uh, and they didn't really know what to make of it, but they just said that yes. You know, they just said, here's a place where we can say yes. And so they went out and they got a copy of that book and he got a copy of that book. And then they had him over for dinner and and they had both read the book and then they just were talking about that. Um, and and they got a little bit more connected. And the book wasn't his story, but there were some ways that the book, you know, sort of said something about his story. Mm-hmm. And the way in which they were willing to say yes and and engage, you know, to, to receive the gift that he had really extended to them by saying, hey, would you be interested in looking at this thing, you know, um, uh, built up a little bit of trust and a little bit of connection. And, and then the next time he came over, he brought this photo album of, of photos of his friends and his time, um, uh, overseas. And, and they just sat on the couch and he showed them those pictures, um, and, and, and told some of his own story. Um, and, and so sometimes when we think, you know, well, this is, this is too little or this isn't enough. You know, we're, we're, we're imagining that this little thing is all it's ever going to be. Um, and sometimes that little thing is that mustard seed kind of thing. The, the thing that looks small and just ends up being something that, that just takes hold in, in such an important way. And I think, again, if we just remember that we're talking about, you know, the, the, that this is really about human relationship and, and sometimes, um, people's experiences, uh, particularly when they're inclusive of trauma, 
um, particularly when that has to do with with some moral stress or some moral injury, folks may be feeling a little bit less open themselves. They might be scared that someone's going to treat them with judgment or with harshness um, or with ridicule or with shame. Um, and so they might not say, you know, they might think to themselves, no, I, I can't share these stories. I can't talk. To, to anybody about this. And so they hold on to those stories. And when you end up holding on to a lot of stuff that you need to grieve and you need to feel and you really need to share, um, and and moral stuff is stuff that we need to share, right? This this is the thing that's 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 really kind of remarkable is sometimes moral trauma has this way of of cutting people off from relationship. But moral stress is really um uh, an experience that's about getting us reconnected. Something in the moral covenant that we share with each other um, has been strained or has been broken that needs some attention and some restoration. And and as we were talking about earlier, Helen, it's all of us. It's not just what the veterans need to talk to the other veterans and work that out, you know, because that's on them. You know, that's, that's right. the wrong way to think about this. That's right. Um, you know, that I just, as you're talking, I am just more and more inspired uh, to share about, again, if we are all one, you know, if we, however you think of that, whether we are all part of the Big Bang Theory or God's children or however we think spiritually or, uh, you know, symbolically about that word oneness, but if we are all one, then we have all, I mean, I... I know that I have killed people in my mind. I have killed people with my words, you know, again, symbolically, but it's the same energy. It's that that separation energy, that violent energy. We all carry it. And if we can acknowledge that, especially with vulnerable people like that coming back from a war situation, you know, if, if we have the opportunity with our loved ones or friends or whatever to say, you know, I'm no different than you are. I have done things that I consider to be immoral. And we all have. We've all done things that whether it's lied or stole a piece of candy or cheated on our husband or, you know, or had an abortion that we regret or whatever it is, we all have done something that we, that has, that have injured us morally. And we all need this. And if we can, if we can realize that and bring that energy toward people who are more obviously suffering from moral injury like the, the vets, then it, it erases that, that barrier between us that says, I'm not like you. I am like you. You just might not see it on the surface. Yeah, I think, I th- I think um, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me, Helen. I think also there's the, the the question of sameness and difference is one that I've thought a, a lot about that that when um, that, that sometimes the way that we come together is is we connect with each other around things that we easily agree on right you know we're we go to the same church because we we kind of believe and worship you know in ways that are all kind of similar to each other or you know uh, other kinds of organizations that we're a part of you know we're, we're brought together over this this common value um, and I think you know, there, there's a way in which that makes a lot of sense to me. But I also think that we don't need to imagine that, that agreeing about something has to be the beginning of our relationship. You know, the... the no, the it doesn't toward, have to be. The journey toward oneness could be about difference. It, it could be about, you know, um, 
uh, Helen, you have had experiences in your life that I will probably never have in my life. And, and, and will you share those with me? Because, um, it, it will, it, it will connect us to each other and it will, um, it will inform the experiences that I've had if we can share with each other. And, and in those differences, I think there's something uh, really important and magnificent that can that can take place. We, we don't need... I agree completely. And you know what? I, I'm sorry to stop you, but we've got less than two minutes and we've got to announce our next show. I think that's a wonderful way to, to end the show, though, Zachary, is saying we don't have to agree. We can find commonalities, but we don't have to. We, we just have to be ourselves and try to connect. And thank you so much, Zachary. I'd love to talk to you for five more hours. Todd, can you tell us about our next week's show? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is so funny that you're talking about this today because you've mentioned this several times. Next week's show is about getting beyond polarization and divisiveness, a conversation between host Todd Benton and Andrew Morgan, documentary filmmaker. A generation of Americans have grown up seeing progress as an inevitable fact, but many are waking up to realize that each of us is responsible sh- for shaping our shared future. How can we shape that shared future together without resorting to shortcuts like labeling or dismissing those we consider different from us? Can we instead try to understand how the life experiences of others impact their views and choices? Join us for a conversation with Andrew Morgan, who returns to Interrevolutionary Radio to talk about his new online documentary series, Untold America. Can this new series help to foster an inner revolution of oneness, accountability, and mutual support? Tune in and find out. The country is more divided than at any point in modern history, and the need for powerful and clear stories of who we are, where we came from, and where we can go are more important than ever. And Zachary, thank you so much for bringing your wisdom and your compassion and your general energy of loving humanity and your hopefulness. We need it and we love you and thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.